Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's podcast, we're honored to have Ashwini Chabra, co-founder and principal of Electric Avenue. Welcome to the podcast, Ashwini. Thanks, Grayson. Great to be here. I'm super excited to chat all about New York and, and urban mobility. So from the financial services industry to working on policy in the NYC Department of Education, it's a big jump, especially in these times. Could you talk about it? Yeah. You know, I think I was at... Uh... I was at a point in my career that a lot of lawyers or former lawyers get to where you're not 100% satisfied with what you're working on until you look around and see what else you could, should be doing. Um, Mike Bloomberg was uh, was the mayor at the time. Um, and so it really was an opportunity to to try my hand at something different. I a lot of the a lot of my colleagues in law school knew they wanted to go into public service. They knew they wanted to go into government. I was never one of those folks. I always thought corporate law. I thought M and A, and that's what I did for the first part of my career. Um, but like I said, you reach a you reach a point. You look around and you curious what else is out there. And Joel Klein was the chancellor of the schools department at the time. And, you know, if you know him, he's, he's got a pretty storied career. And so it was really an opportunity to go work for Mike Bloomberg, to go work for Joel um, and help really bring some, what I like to think, private sector thinking to public sector problems. Um, and so I really spent a lot of my time focusing on building out the charter school network um, and you know if you if you had to sort of draw a line between the different parts of my career there's the common thread that I see is there's a there there's there's an openness and a receptivity to new models of thinking so think about charter schools as to traditional public schools uber as to traditional, taxis and so forth and so that's what really appealed to me about the Department of Ed at that time and the role that I could play in it. Charter schools, uh, be very frank and very blunt, are wonderful and the positive impact that they have on families and children's futures are just uh, just immense and so anything that we could do to extend that and you did a really great job with that under the Bloomberg administration and staying on the school theme here for a minute. What are your thoughts on schools reopening around the country? Now we see some schools with a hybrid model, some all in person and some virtual learning. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm so far removed from it that I'm, I'm, I'm far from an expert on how schools should reopen and the answer is going to be different in different places. But the one takeaway that I have from maybe my career in mobility is whatever we do, there's a need to sort of think outside the way we've traditionally done education. And I think a lot of what that entails is rethinking the space we utilize and the space that we devote to education. So for example, some schools in New York are taking advantage of outdoor space while the weather's still good to be able to extend the, the footprint where students can learn. So I think that's something that school districts should be open to and really should be leaning into is while that window is there for the next couple of months, what are we doing about the street space and the parking space and so forth that we're prioritizing for cars over our kids? Um, and that's just a theme that 
you know, I come back to in a lot of my work is how are we thinking about public space and how you prioritize your public space is really how you prioritize people in your city. So are we thinking about motorists? Are we thinking about people behind the wheel and commuters? Or are we thinking about students who need to learn? Obviously, you need to think about both uh, in order for a city to run well. But it may be a time and a place uh, where we need to readjust some of those priorities. You write about readjusting the priorities and you're, you're right about taking children out of the classroom. If we, we look at New York City as we start to enter the fall, how cool would it be as we have maybe two months left of nice weather in New York to have an outdoor classroom in Central Park to, to, study, to study nature or to take a class trip to study entrepreneurship at Coney Island and how that was built. There's so many unique opportunities that you, you can really only do in New York City or you can take a field trip to the Statue of Liberty, or you can go to Ellis Island. And to me, and I believe that you feel the same way, the big thing to connect all this is transportation. Imagine if we can take that classroom experience where if you're going to um, the Natural History Museum, the children could hop in you know, some sort of uh, vehicle where they can have a briefing uh, and like augmented reality or virtual reality about whales or some form of nature. And it just could change the kids' lives. So they're always learning on the way there. And that's going to be just, I think, absolutely fantastic when we completely reimagine our cities. If we build it around children and around an always learning philosophy, we're just going to unlock some of the some of the brightest minds in the world. I think I think that's right. And I mean, we're blessed in New York and a lot of other large cities in that we have good transit. Uh, you know, New Yorkers will always quibble about how good this subway is, and uh, and it's one of those things where. You love it so much you want you, you you hate when it falls into disrepair but the subway is the backbone of this city um and public transit is the backbone of this city and it's it's what all these other services build off of and so i don't think that that what you're describing is that far off i think transit is reopening uh slowly but surely i think we have to we have to invest in it we needed to invest in it before covid we need to double down on that investment now but that's really the only way the city's going to open up whether it's for purposes of education purposes of commerce purposes of drawing tourism dollars back into the city you're going to need to get the subway back to near capacity and that's something that we can't do without federal support if the if the country is looking to new york to be an engine of growth new york is looking to the subway system to to fuel that growth and so that's the way i think we really need to think about it this is an economic development issue and so what are we doing about planning ahead so that when we are more open and when everyone is back in the city and there's more people in the city um, than even before covid how are we going to move those folks around and that's that's that ties into education that ties into all of the things that are important for the proper functioning of a city so i'm a big i'm a big new york city subway fan and i do think that we'll figure out a way to improve the the service and to improve the system and make it more resilient you know coming out of hurricane sandy a few years ago there were it revealed weaknesses in the system and we're addressing those now and you need sometimes these cataclysmic events uh, in order to highlight where the weaknesses are so you can come back stronger. And I think 
um, if New York has demonstrated anything, it's it's we're a tough city. And I think COVID will be one of those cataclysmic events that allows us to reevaluate, come back, invest in the right places and be more resilient afterwards. New York is I would go very uh, is probably the most resilient, if uh, if not the most resilient city in the world. It's an incredible city that's made up of in- incredible individuals from from all walks of life and and, and and all backgrounds. It's just this incredible cosmopolitan city of life. And when you're creating all these different environments, right, we have to move people around and we have to move them around in an efficient way. And you served in uh, the Bloomberg administration and you also actually served in the uh, mayor's office as a senior policy advisor. Michael Bloomberg was very pro subway, was always seeming to read with his Wall Street Journal, taking the subway, sending a very positive message that the, the subway works. How do you think that fu- future administrations can give that same message that the subway is efficient, the subway is clean, the subway uh, to go out on a limb is healthy? What do you think it's going to take to get those individuals comfortable with it without having a mayor that's actively riding the subway every day uh, talking about the benefits of the subway? I think the city's leadership more generally needs to embrace it. It's, um, you know, it, the, the mayor needs to do it, the city council speaker, the city controller. I think the the head of New York City Transit, um, she regularly rides the subway and has throughout the, throughout the pandemic. And so that sends a really strong signal that the folks who we're looking to to save the system have faith in the system. And so that sort of stuff is really important. If you're not into politics and if you're not into government, really what you see of your elected officials are those very public um, shows of support. I mean, I think people talk about we need a cheerleader for New York coming out of COVID, someone who's going to get people to come back to the city and invest in the city. And that's that's you know, that's a part of a mayor's job, but it's also the part of every city leader's job. It's also the a part of the 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 business community's job is to signal to their workforce and to the broader workforce that New York City is where it's at. There's going to be ups and downs, and people will um, people will leave to go to the suburbs for a while, and people will leave and go to San Francisco for a while, um, and and other places out west, but. New York constantly renews itself. There's that sense of creative destruction that we refer to when we're talking about buildings and places, but it's also in our human capital. People turn over in New York. A lot of people don't live here for more than a few years, but when they're here, they're often performing at the peak of their capabilities. And so you want that to be a place, you want New York to be a place that harnesses that energy. And so coming back to what can our leaders do, whether it's elected officials, whether it's business officials, whether it's civic leaders, it really is being out front, using the subway, eating in restaurants when when they've opened up for outdoor dining. Um, one day when we open up for indoor dining, being being some of the first folks to take advantage of that frequenting local businesses, all the things that we know are necessary to bring the economy back. Um, we need people, prominent people, to be out front and and being cheerleaders for the city in that way. We had really good news uh, this week on, on prominent cheerleaders for the city making a U-turn. Daniel Hum, who's the um, co-owner and the lead chef of the Three Michelin Star 
restaurant Love in Madison Park came out and said, we are going to reopen again. We have decided that New York is coming back and we are going to reopen whenever they allow us for in-room dining. We're going to allow people to come into the restaurant. We are not going to abandon New York. And that's one of the premier restaurants in the country, if not the world, to do a complete U-turn and said, we love New York. So that's a really positive sign. And hopefully that leads to to other trends in the city with other individuals. But on the flip side, we're having announcements from major large publicly traded corporations that say you cannot come into the office if you take public transit we will pay for you to take another means of transit how are you going to get or how do you convince as an elected official or an influencer or a prominent individual to say okay business leader the, the subway is actually safe and we would encourage your employees because they're used to getting around New York that way how do you get over that hurdle you know some of this is you have to chalk up to facts are changing minute by minute. Uh, And so what feels unsafe one day, we realize the spread is more through uh, airborne particles and not through surface transmission. And so a lot of our assumptions around the subway or other other modes of transport have changed over the last couple of months. And so I think a lot of that just comes with education. And we're all learning about this as we go along. And so you know, I, I applaud 11 Madison Park. I applaud the restaurants uh, who are committed to New York and would never would never contemplate running their business elsewhere. This is the capital of the world. And if you can make it here and you can make it anywhere, I think you're seeing that with companies like Facebook and Google really doubling down on commercial real estate in the city. They know that this will pass. Uh, they know that in a couple of years um, when they're when they're strapped for space, they will appreciate the fact that they were able to buy additional space at this time at a good price. Um, I think right now, New York feels a little bit like a buyer's market. And I think the smart money gets that. And so whether you're a restaurant um, that is currently closed, but sees the light at the end of the tunnel, or you're a big corporation that realizes this is actually a buying opportunity, I think that awareness of New York's resiliency and the fact that we've seen this, we saw this after 9-11, Tribeca is now the most booming neighborhood in the city, and that was in the shadow of the Twin Towers. Um, We saw it after Sandy, we're going to see it after COVID. Um, I think the, the challenges around how safe we feel in different modes, that's going to change from day to day, I think. People, ridership on the subway is already significantly higher than it was a month or two ago when some of those first statements came out. Um, I think you're seeing that ridership on rideshare services is increasing. I think you're seeing certainly utilization of city bike has been robust and through the roof throughout the throughout this period. So people need to get around the city, um, and if the city is going to go back to being at capacity, meaning schools are open, businesses are open, people are at offices, you're going to need to tap into all those modes of getting around. And I, I think we won't have a choice. There's there's just not enough seats to move everyone without the city coming to a halt from gridlock if we don't utilize mass transit. And really our challenge is how do we make that a safe option and keep that a safe option and, and convince people that it's safe. And I think the best way to do that is to use it, 
to show everyone that it's in use and that infection rates are not being impacted by it. And I think the sub 1% infection rate that you're seeing across the state for the last, I want to say about a month, has been a great uh, testament to that. People are using transit and we're managing to keep that curve flat. So that's a good signal. From a political standpoint, why are elected officials not talking about transit being used in New York? With the low infection rate, to me, it seems that this is something positive that they should be touting from the rooftops. Transit safe, tr- transit's working. We've moved X amount of passengers through it. The, you have, um, I grew up in Connecticut, and you have the Metro North that goes into New York, so you have a lot of, and you have the New Jersey rails, so you have the commuter rails that are that come into the city, and you're not hearing any large outbreaks or service being shut down. Just it seems like it's like okay, it kind of went back to normal. Nobody talks about it, but you need a public relations camp campaign to you know talk about all the positive things. And we saw that, and you know I remember nine eleven vividly when during the Giuliani, Giuliani administration when the sports teams came out, the New York Yankees and then the New York Mets and the Rangers. We love New York, and there was this genuine love in the air of New York, and people came together. When do we get there? When government uh, and the pub. Uh, and the private sector come together to show that love of New York once again? It's a good question. I, w- I, I feel like I've seen it. I've seen it in small ways and from voices that I trust that are that are also lovers of transit, but are also New York skeptics. And and they're, they're sort of dipping their toe back in. So I, it's not a day that goes by. It does, I don't see a tweet that says, first time back on the subway after six months and it's glorious and it's beautiful and it's you know it's cleaner than I've ever seen it and so you're starting to see that but you're right I haven't seen someone shout it from the rooftops I haven't seen big names come out and say the subway is back the subway is better than ever um, and I think we're all just a little shell-shocked you know six months five months is a long time to have been holed up in our apartments or for some folks to have left the city and to be coming back. And so I think everyone is a bit wary. And I think the time will come when we kind of all emerge, we all use those public spaces, whether it's transit, whether it's restaurants, whether it's shops, and nothing terrible happens. And then I think you will see some of that outpouring of support. Um, The other thing is, you know, the subway is one of these things that if you're a New Yorker, you just, we've taken it for granted and you don't realize what you had until you lose it. And so I think there isn't that sense of um, fandom um, that you might see if you're a, if you're a Met supporter and you've waited all those many years uh, for them to do good. And so, but I, but I think you should. I think, uh, you know, there are there are New York City transit T-shirts um, that are that are doing the round. So I think you're going to see some of that that fandom develop around the most cherished aspects of New York City. And that's going to be the museums. It's going to be the cultural institutions. It's definitely going to be the subway. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I but I think it's uh, it's something we need. So. Now you've got me on baseball here, so I'm going to go on a little thing here. Stevie Cohen <laughs> buys the Mets, sinks in a lot of money. Yankees have a big problem because then, then you're going to have a really com- really competitive Mets team because they got a heck of a starting rotation. That's going to be interesting. But as far as the pub- public figure, what New York needs, they need somebody like Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports to stand up there, like his DTD day trading stuff, to sit up there and just, this love of New York to get through all the headlines and cut through all the clutter. 
then you're going to see that the, the New York economy just start rebounding fast faster than than ever. But what we haven't touched on, and going into your background a little bit, is the Taxi and Limousine Commission. Were taxis operating during COVID? Are they are they just completely decimated, or how how were they holding up during this whole process in New York? Yeah, no, I think um, you know they're hurting. Um, I think utilization is down uh, tremendously. I don't know the exact numbers, but and and things are improving. We're now in September, and sort of in May and June, in, in the worst of it. I don't think I saw taxis on the street, to be frank. Um, one of the saving graces has been the plexiglass dividers. And so for folks who are wary, um, that does afford some degree of, of assurance. Um, and you know, I think for a lot of folks, there's just not somewhere to go. And so that's also impacted demand for the service, whether it's taxis, Uber, Lyft, what have you. Um, and that's starting to change. Schools are going to be opening up, fingers crossed, in a couple of weeks. Um, people are going to need to be able to get to work as those as businesses continue to open up. And so you're going to need a way of getting around. And the for hire sector, which includes taxis, black cars, et cetera, in New York is, I, I think, on par with the transit systems of most other major cities, something like if you if you if the taxi and limousine um, industry were a transit system, it would be the tenth largest in the country. Um, so that's a lot of trips, um, and and it, and it may even be bigger than that. So I think you'll see that. But yeah, the in this industry has really been hurting over the last few months, and you know I think the folks who are impacted the most and most directly are are the drivers who were looking to that for for a means of livelihood and the if you live in new york or you lived around new york you knew about taxi medallions and the the banks that just serviced medallions does and, and they're having an absolute loan crisis now and a lot of those medallions are under underwater does the medallion system at some point go away it it probably does um, and, and I think, you know, you've seen it, you've seen it evolve over the decades too. the taxi medallion system was created in the, in the 1930s under the Haas Act. I think you could get a medallion for 10 bucks. Um, and it was really a means to rein in the number of people out there driving taxis or claiming to be taxi drivers. Um, and so that was a noble goal at the time. It's then sort of morphed and become a perverted asset um, where it's amassed all this value. It's it's created winners and losers. And what you're seeing most recently is the price really just going through the roof. And what what we saw in New York and Boston and Philly and a lot of other markets was a parallel to the to the 2008 mortgage crisis, where you had lenders who really weren't all that diligent um, about their lending terms. And so people were getting loans that really shouldn't have been getting loans of that magnitude. It was pegged to the the idea that this asset value would only increase. And I think, as we all know, that hasn't been the case in the last five, six years. And so it was it was a crisis that was waiting to happen. It took a long time for it to come to pass. Um, but the idea of you get a permit to provide taxi service forever is 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 pretty 
it's it's not how we do things in other aspects of our life. You get a you get a license to run a restaurant, you need to come back and renew that the following year. And if you don't pass the if you don't if you don't pass inspection, then you don't get to provide that service. So there's a quality assurance there. Black cars in New York are an annual license as well. You come in, you get a license to provide a car service, and that's good for I think three years, and then three years later you got to come back and you apply. But you you can't. There's an unlimited number of those. You can't turn around and sell it to someone for more than you paid for it. And so you still get the service. You still have the quality assurance, but you're not creating this asset that reaches some. Um, inflated level of value that then can result in all sorts of bad things. So I do think that the medallion system goes away. It's it's not so much a crash as it is a deflation. Um, And you're already seeing the value of the medallion dropping pretty, pretty significantly over the last few years. Um, And I think the notion of the only way to make a living in the for hire sector is through a fixed asset this medallion, um, that model, to the extent that it made sense 100 years ago, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Doing good 100 years ago created a modern-day asset bubble. Yeah. I want to stay on taxi for a couple more points. And When credit cards were mandated in New York City taxis, you'd get in the taxi and you'd go to pay. Machines broken, and then um, I believe it was during the Bloomberg administration, uh, the, the mayor uh, passed a law, signed into law, where uh, if the credit card machine's broken, your fare or something was on the house, and all suddenly say, okay, well, the law states that I, if your machine's broken, I can get, oh, no, no, no. They go under the hood, and they magically connect something, and the credit card machine works. How was New York able to over overcome that with the taxi driver? Say, listen, you know, the mayor signed this into law. You have to take the credit card. How are we able to come over all those uh, hurdles? You know, some of it is just around educating people. Um making sure that consumers know that you, if you wanna pay with a credit card, that is your right. You do not have to pay in cash. And so some of that is signposting. Once we were able to put the TV screens in the back seats of the cars, we were able to deliver that messaging directly to say, if you have any complaint, um, call 311. And by the way, you have the right to pay with a credit card. And if if your driver says that you can't, you can file a complaint with us. On the other side, it's educating drivers and demonstrating to them that actually accepting credit cards is good for your business. You'll get more trips. You're growing, we're growing the size of the pie. So it's not just folks who have cash handy, but people who can pay with credit card. And guess what? When people pay with credit card, they may actually tip better. Um, And so I think it took some time for that message to get through. It took enforcement. Um, It took the creating the avenue for people to complain so that drivers understood that I can't I can't get away with the credit card machine is broken um, and nor do I want to credit card payments you know the, the reason they were reluctant to to accept credit cards was one you've got to pay a transaction fee to the credit card company but then also this was income that you needed to report and so both of those were, um, those were new. And as we've seen industry after industry, change is hard. And so it really, sometimes it takes time, it takes education, but it really takes people understanding that this is actually in my best interest. And I don't think you see that, you don't see the challenge anymore. As someone who lived in New York during that, thank you, 
because it changed it changed the game and it just it, you made getting into a cab a simple thing if i'm gonna go 15 20 blocks i didn't have to go the stress because before your enforcement we had you're gearing up the whole way for a fight because you know this person's gonna fight and then i'm gonna call the police okay well i'm gonna call the police and then magically it just disappears last thing on taxis is you mentioned plexiglass why was the plexiglass originally installed? Because today it's with this in a COVID world, it's brilliant. But why was it originally installed? Was it a, was it a safety issue? It was, yeah. Um, so I think it dates to the early '80s, um, and I don't know if it, it was mandated, but it was something that the the Taxi Drivers Guild wanted. Um, and really, you know, if you think about taxi service, that makes it unique. It's not like Uber. Yeah, the driver has to pick up anyone who hails them. And so there isn't a record of, all right, here's the rider, here's their here's their contact info, here's their credit card info. There's no recourse if someone gets in a car and with intent to harm you. And if you think about the late 70s and the early 80s, this was this was a bit of a rough time in New York. And so you were seeing acts of violence against taxi drivers who, you know, you got to think of them as frontline workers uh, in the transportation industry in New York, and so this was really there as a as a means of protecting drivers from from acts of violence. Um, there has been some efforts to remove those. I think you saw, and and we heard from the industry in the in sort of the third Bloomberg term that you know we don't actually want the dividers there anymore. Um, it it sort of creates a barrier between the rider and the passenger, and it's expensive to maintain and so forth. Um, and so some cars did remove them, um, but I think they're certainly glad for it now in a world of COVID. In fact, I've taken many Ubers that have also installed plexiglass dividers, and so um, that's that's something that is spreading actually from from the taxi segment more broadly. When you were the global head of policy and development at Uber after leaving the TLC, did the plexiglass debate ever come up? Was there anything around driver safety or any of that stuff that you experienced from the TLC? Did any of that bubble up over at Uber in the early days? Because you were there during the massive growth phase. Sure. Uh, you know, safety is always a paramount concern. And any any field of transportation that's going to be a concern uh, is driver safety, passenger safety, and how do you how do you ensure that everyone involved in your service um, is safe both as a as a user of the road but also if you're in close proximity with with a driver or with a rider the 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 solution in the ride hailing space really is well the tech can solve for that we have complete transparency into who the rider is who the driver is and that goes far that deterrent effect that that creates provides you greater protection than than a partition potentially could. Um, and so people are less likely to behave poorly or to commit any sort of um, crime if uh, if they know they're that they're being monitored. And and I think that's that's the case. Um, it also if you go back to the early days of ride hailing um, with Lyft with the fist bump and sort of that playful um, nature of the service, it really would have dampened that that connection between riders and drivers. And you know I think in the years since, the services have become 
pretty commoditized. And so I think people now come to sort of think of it as, well, it's just a taxi alternative. But you have to remember in 2010, 2012, the idea of taking a Lyft or taking an Uber was a, it was shared rides was how it was referred to. And there was a communal aspect to it. And so I think for many reasons, um, that's that's why there wasn't the um, the divider. And that's why riders would often ride in the front passenger seat alongside the driver is because of that sense of, of community. Um, I think COVID scrambles everything. And so who's to say you may you may see more of that you may see partitions and other protections put in place now uh to 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 address safety in a very different way you bring up a very valid point about sense of community so i remember i was in traveling in boston i was doing some stuff at mit and i had the same driver five times he was the uber suv and he was one of the first drivers in boston it was oh this uber thing it's new and then when i went um into new york with people oh you took uber here oh how cool is that and people would talk about oh i want to go in the uber it was just this really sense of of coolness around community and you've given a lot of impassioned talks about cities and, and reimagining cities and cities are communities and i want to read a quote to you because you gave a very powerful ted talk in 2019 and, and you said this line that i would say frankly is pretty famous the scooter is going to save your city while you put a picture of a bird scooter on a on the projector could you talk about this powerful statement please sure i mean you know the the scooter is really stand-in for so many other things um it, it it symbolizes first and foremost shared mobility so the idea of we don't all have to own our own means of conveyance especially in a city where it's actually incredibly inconvenient to have to park your car or lock up your bike or lock up your scooter or take it upstairs with you when you go home or into your office. The idea of once you sort of get over the the mental hurdle of sharing a vehicle really, really is liberating. And so that's really, to me, what the scooter represents first and foremost is the shared aspect of mobility, which, which to be honest, is nothing new. I mean, taxis are shared mobility, buses and subways are shared mobility. So the idea of I don't have to carry around with me my mode of conveyance is nothing new, but I think what scooters and e-bikes and and bicycles represent beyond that is it's point to point. And so, you know, you saw that that was the that was the innovation that taxis and Ubers brought beyond what mass transit brings, which is it's not just the it's not just the trunk line that you can rely on for this third party service. Um, but it's point to point. When you want to go from home to work or work to school, you you get there from door to door. And so that convenience really unlocks a lot of potential for for people. Now take that a step further and the scooter or the e-bike is fully electric. So it's cleaner and it's one-tenth to one-fifteenth the space of a car. And so now you've really put this thing through a wind tunnel where you've stripped away anything that's superfluous. It's cleaner than an internal combustion engine vehicle. It takes you point to point. And really the footprint of it is minimal. It takes up no more space than you standing would. And so you've really distilled it down to, you've, you've distilled mobility down to 
its fundamentals, which is just two wheels. And so that to me is what is the potential game changer. You've, I don't know if you've seen these memes, but they'll they'll show you 50 cars and then they'll show you 50 electric cars, show you 50 Ubers, and then they'll show you 50 self-driving cars. And it's the same picture, right? The footprint isn't changed when you go from one platform to the next, but when you change the form factor to something much more compact and that's then shared on top, you really see this step change around what that ratio of space taken up and um, and resources consumed to what the benefit provided is. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, we talk about cities right now um, are home to about 4 billion people. That's only gonna increase in the coming decades. So space is really at a premium. We talked about it a little bit earlier where um, we're talking about reimagining how you can open schools and repurposing space outside of schools. The only way to do that is if you don't prioritize all this space for cars. And if you think about how can we still move people around without all the parking and all the lanes that are devoted to moving cars, the, really the only way to do that is with small um, human scale transportation. And so scooters, bikes, e-bikes, all of those to me are the the step change that's needed in order to in order to be able to do that. With 55% of the world's population living in cities today. So you have smaller compact transportation. What's the next step and and how are you imagining that cities are going to look like in the future when this vision comes together? Well, first of all, like I said, that's that's 4 billion people already. And if you look ahead, I think the 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 projections are that by 2050, you're going to have another two and a half billion people joining us. And so to the extent that cities are crowded already, they're about to get much more crowded. And so you think about how do we move those people? How do you house those people? Where do they work? How do you feed those people? We got a real, there's some real challenges coming around how we can manage our cities to accommodate um, all, all of our new neighbors. Um, you know, I think the the challenge, the, the way to surmount some of those challenges is to step back and look at how we're prioritizing our use of space. So the, there's, there's a debate in housing around how densely you should develop. Um, you know, you may, you may love your uh, two-story ha- townhouse, but in, on that same footprint, if you had a larger building that could accommodate more people, you would, ha- you would have more people um, having access to the same services in, in your neighborhood. And so this idea, and Paris has become a world leader uh, on this issue of the 15-minute city, meaning you should be able to reach all the services you need within a 15 minute walk of where you live. And so that idea of you're a mega city, but actually it's a mega city that's comprised of lots of little neighborhoods or villages. And so getting hyper local allows you to not have to travel from one neighborhood to the next in order to access healthcare, in order to access education, in order to access employment. And so like I said, it's it's that total reimagining of what a city's layout should be that touches on housing, that touches on where s- essential services are located, but then it also touches on mobility to the extent that you need to get around beyond that 15-minute walk. 
what's the best way of doing it? And, you know, you look at how much of our roads are given over to cars, whether they're being driven or whether they're being parked. And something crazy like 14% of Los Angeles surface area is parking. That's mind boggling. If you if you think about we don't have enough room for outdoor education for for schools coming out of COVID, that seems like a very natural place to look to to repurpose and to reprioritize how we're thinking about that space. So, you know, I think t- the the short version of that answer is stepping back and reprioritizing what we value and as cities are going to get more and more crowded, this idea of 15-minute cities, 20-minute cities um, is, has, has a lot of appeal. And then the idea of, well, if you're, if you're living in this, in this small village, how would you design your small village? Would you give over 14% of it to storing vehicles that really sit idle about 95% of the time? Or would you think about how can schools utilize this space? How can restaurants utilize this for outdoor dining even after the pandemic is over? I don't know anyone in New York who's used outdoor dining who doesn't hope that some version of that stays after the pandemic goes away. It's just, it's it's the thing that we always thought was you had to go to Europe in order to experience that. But no, you can actually do it here. And, and I don't think anyone wants to go back to a world where you don't have that option. Outdoor dining in the early fall in New York is is magical. You've got the smell of the city, the hustle and the bustle and the energy, and it's this this wonderful experience. If we are to eliminate all parking in a city, how will politicians rewrite the zoning laws to eliminate all this? It seems like developers would be all in on eliminating parking, but how are we going to get the politicians and the special interests that really want that um, sort of development to to remove these zoning rules? You know, I think crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And so the pandemic really presents an opportunity for people to try this and see how they like it. And once once, once your constituents like something and they're clamoring for it, uh, all sorts of opposition falls away. And so you saw this with bike lanes. Um, a lot of small businesses objected to bike lanes being installed in front of their, uh, in front of their sidewalks there was concern that there wouldn't be place for customers to park they would their their business would would drop off uh they objected to bike racks and and city bike racks being installed um and what we've seen has been the opposite um people who bike tend to shop more having a bike lane there opens up sight lanes and so businesses that were previously hidden behind walls of suvs are more visible to people now and so you're seeing in city after city that having that openness, rethinking and repurposing the space in front of your business um, for human scale activity, whether that's walking, biking, scooting, that really drives a lot of businesses. Um, and it, with restaurants, you're seeing it for sure. So that's that I think is going, that message is going to uh, certainly be heard by politicians. And so I think some of the, the, the long-standing concerns around zoning and the objections that have come from small businesses, you might see some of that changing in the in the coming years. That's wonderful. And we have elected officials uh, that, that subscribe and listen to this podcast. So uh, thank you for that message. And as we look to wrap up this incredibly insightful conversation, I'd like to leave it on this. What would you like our listeners, including the elected officials and their staffs who are listening, to take away with them on your vision of, of, of the future of cities? 
you know, I've uh, I've used this line before that one day our kids will play in the streets again, um, and it's that really is what I keep coming back to is who are streets for, and who are cities for? You know, they're not for the big corporations. They're not for cars. Uh, they're not for governments, and they're not for uh, the, the the folks who don't live there. Really, at at root, if you had to design your city from scratch, you would think about the most vulnerable people in your population. You would think about children. You would think about elderly residents. You would think about folks with disabilities, and you would think about just every day you and I, the the idea of enjoying where we live and streets and sidewalks not just being the conduit that we use to get from our house to our office and back to our house and back to our office, but really a place that you enjoy being in. I mean, you know, why do we why do we travel? Why do we like to go places? It's because when you go to Paris, when you go to Rome, you're you're free to roam. Uh, you're free to walk around and you what do you what do you do when you're there? You'll see some sights, but really a lot of what you appreciate about these other places you visit is walking around and seeing the city, sort of the ballet of the city. And the the, the perverse thing is we don't we don't live in our own cities in that way. And some of that is just routine doesn't permit you to, but how great would it be if even within your routine the place and the and the conduit that you use to get from A to B on a daily basis were a pleasant place. If you thought, hey, actually, I'm going to walk because it's so beautiful and the streets are so clear and I feel so comfortable on our streets that it beats actually getting in the backseat of a car. And so coming back to, you know, our kids will play in our streets. That really is something that I've seen during the pandemic is kids are skateboarding Kids are biking around on streets that before used to have cars hurtling down them at 30, 40 miles an hour. And I don't think I know anyone who wants to return to that. And so, again, you know, crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Um, I think the pandemic offers us an opportunity to realize that people people see what it's like. Um, and I think elected officials are going to hear it from their constituents that they don't want to go back to free parking. What they want is free and open streets. That's a very, very powerful way to end it. And you mentioned walking and and seeing around a city. There was a great interview, I believe it was in the New York Times a couple of years ago with Bob Dylan about New York City. And he said, everybody's walking around with these damn white AirPods in their ears and they're missing the sounds of this incredible, incredible city. And walking around New York City from the Lower East to the Upper East or around Central Park is one of the most magical things you can do. You can just get lost and discover new things. The same within Paris and the same within Venice. And our cities are wonderful places that we have to ex- have to explore and teach our children about exploration. So, Ashwani, I thank you so much for coming on and being extremely generous with your time here. And as we've heard on this podcast, in the future, our cities will become more livable. So, Sonny, thank you again so much. And for our listeners who want to get in touch with you, how can they uh, get in touch with you to learn more about what you're doing? Um, you can go to electricavenue.city. Um, and that's that's the firm that uh, that I've founded, Postbird. Um, and we're working with a lot of 
new companies um, in the new mobility space and our mission is to help accelerate the transition to human scale zero emissions vehicles and so check out the website um, my email address is ashwini at electricavenue.city so would love to hear from folks awesome thanks again so much for coming on thanks grayson appreciate it thank you for listening to sae's tomorrow today podcast if you've enjoyed this episode please kindly rate it share your feedback we love comments and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform for more information on sae and sae podcasts be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow sae on social media at saeintl on twitter and instagram and at sae international on facebook and linkedin SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.